Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to LSC. Welcome to this public lecture with Rachel Kite. My name is Sam Fankhauser. I'm co-director of the Grantham Research Institute um, here at the school. I guess you sort of all know the, the context of uh, when this talk happens. We're about six weeks or so away from the, the Paris Climate Summit that will happen at the beginning of December. Um, officially, it's uh, COP21, so it's the 21st of those summits, but it's the most important one for uh, quite a few years, the most important one certainly since 2000. And nine. Just before Paris, there will also be an announcement in the UK for the Brits amongst you. Uh, the Committee on Climate Change will publish its advice on the fifth carbon budget uh, just, just before Paris at the end of November. Uh, the fifth carbon budget is the statutory um, emission limit uh, for, the, for the UK uh, under the Climate Change Act for the period, the five years around 2030. So there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment, so it's a very important period, in a sense, for, for climate policy. Hence, it is a good moment uh, for us to uh, organize this talk and talk not just about Paris, but also sort of more broadly about the, the various actions we need, the measures we need, we need to reduce uh, global greenhouse gas emissions, but also to adapt uh, to the impacts of climate change. It's those impacts that we can no longer avoid, those impacts that are, are already in the pipeline now. That's, of course, uh, for those of you who know the Grantham Research Institute, that's exactly what we do at the Institute. That is our bread and butter. Um, but tonight we're, uh, we hear from somebody whose job isn't just to think about these things, but also to... Uh, to put them into action. Rachel Kite is Vice President and Special Envoy uh, on Climate Change uh, at the World Bank Group. As a, as a Special Envoy, it is, uh, in a sense, she's sort of the, the chief cheerleader, I guess, for all things climate in the World Bank, but there's sort of a serious responsibility that goes with it. It's the responsibility across the whole World Bank Group uh, for all climate change work. So that's mitigation, that's adaptation, that's climate finance. Um, so that's quite, quite the responsibility, actually. Before Rachel became special envoy, she was a vice president at the Bank for Sustainable Development. Um, so she was in the vice presidency where I spent five very happy years in Washington. I wasn't quite at, at, at your level, but uh, I enjoyed it anyway. Uh, Rachel was, uh, was also a senior ago. manager at the IFC, so the uh, private sector arm of the World Bank. And given that we are here at LSC, I think I would also mention that she is a professor of practice uh, in sustainable development at the uh, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. So we'll be in, in good hands tonight. But before I hand you over, just the sort of usual um, housekeeping reminders please do not switch off your mobile phone, but please put it on mute and please use it to tweet. Um, you see the hashtag uh, behind me. It's uh, hashtag LSE Carbon. Please use that uh, to tweet about uh, what you're about to hear. 
and, and sort of make this uh, an interesting and interactive event. So that's all from me at this point. Uh, please help me welcome Rachel Kite. If you're going to tweet, um, please be kind, and uh, please tweet that uh, West Ham are going to win the Premiership this year. So, so you already know that I'm an optimist, um, which is very important in this field. Um, I gave the title of uh, this uh, talk or lecture to, to uh, the Grantham Institute to whom I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to be here tonight, uh, a few months ago. Um, and since then, um, a lot has happened, uh, a lot of good things. Uh, the negotiators still toil away uh, on their road to Paris and COP21. Um, but uh, I was thinking, uh, reflecting on the title, and there's a lot of code in the title, right? The phrase, orderly transition... Is, is really code for, if there is a carbon bubble, um, how do you unwrap a global economy that is so wedded to fossil fuels uh, in the past? Um, low carbon growth is really the comfortable phraseology around mitigation. Resilient development is really how we're going to pay for the costs of adaptation and how are we going to think about the costs of loss and damage. Um, but as we're going to be meeting in Paris in a few weeks' time, <clears throat> and as I was listening to what was happening in the negotiations this week in Bonn, the last intercessional negotiations, I really thought that the sort of shorthand for where we are is are we going to pivot in Paris or are we going to simply pirouette? So are we going to just spin round and round, look really pretty, and then end up facing exactly where we were before we entered Paris, or are we actually going to take this opportunity and set off on a different trajectory um, following on from the meeting. The really exciting thing for you, um, and I'm assuming here that you are generationally distinct from me, is that um, these are extraordinary times. There is so much that's happening and what you have to do, uh, what we have to do together is sift through it to work out which of it is material and meaningful and which of it isn't. So let's just take this week alone. On Tuesday of this week, our website, now we're the World Bank Group, right? Economic Development Institution of Choice, you know, some people like us, some people don't. Um, we had 100, more or less, since Tuesday, we've had about 100 million hits um, on Twitter and extraordinary traffic to one website, uh, one webpage on our site around carbon pricing as the result of Christine Lagarde and Jim Kim, Managing Director of the IMF, President of the Bank, together with Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande and Enrique Peña Nieto, um, Benito Aquino, um, Governor Jerry Brown of California, um, and Michelle Bachelet from Chile, and Mayor Eduardo Pais of Rio de Janeiro standing up and saying, OK, we took the political decision, we have taken the political decision to put a price on carbon. Can all of our peers now simply just join us? And if you're going to go to Paris and you're not going to be talking about when to get your prices right, then you're really not exercising the political leadership we need. 
So unpack that, A, that it's the World Bank Group's website, you know, B, that there's that group of people, C, that sitting heads of state are calling for other heads of state to just do what political leaders need to do, which is to lead. We've never seen this uh, before. On Wednesday, Justin Trudeau, you know, the new good-looking Prime Minister of Canada with the tattoo, comes out and says, within 90 days, a national plan, please, and let's have uh, mechanisms for all of the provinces to be able to trade uh, carbon. So, of course, we have a budget-neutral tax in British Columbia, and both uh, Quebec and Ontario uh, have looked at our linking with the California auction system, and other, and obviously the uh, NDP in Alberta had also signalled uh, uh, an attitudinal shift towards carbon in the recent elections. So that's quite interesting. And then Friday of last week in Paris, you know, the six big uh, gas companies of the uh, private gas companies of the Western world stood up with Saudi Aramco and others and re-pledged their leadership and re-pledged their decision. Uh, to not only uh, uh, plead with uh, government for regulatory certainty, but to actually advocate for and sit down with governments and um, in a you know, non-competitive, non-antitrust uh, breaking way, talk about why the gas sector in certain countries would really benefit from predictable, um, stable, long-term Uh, regulatory systems that would price carbon and would actually provide them with the regimen that they need to make the right R&D choices. Wednesday, uh, the International Council of Mining and Metals, the club of the biggest mineral and resources companies in the world, called for regulatory certainty and called for prices on carbon. Okay, so that's all within less than a week. The private sector is not known for calling for rules, regulation, taxes upon itself. This is not normally the government affairs relations primary mandate. But I do think that this is now serious and that this is not, this is not greenwash. I think, you know, maybe three, four years ago, a couple of companies coming out and saying, you know, yeah, we should have a price on carbon, was very different to now private companies sitting down in rooms where we are and the IMF and the OECD are and some civil society organisations are, and many companies are, and many governments are, and actually rolling up their sleeves and saying, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this quickly? How do we do this smoothly? And then how will we link these carbon markets, whether they are taxes or whether they are, um, uh, or whether they are trading systems, how will we link them in a globally networked carbon market that will bring uh, benefits to everybody quicker that than if we were not to do this. So I see a seriousness of intent. I see a real realisation that we are at an inflection point and that the potential for benefit, and from the private sector's point of view, the benefit is competitiveness, profit and market share in a world where carbon is not such an important part of the growth trajectory. I see that in this reflection point, in this inflection point, Serious boardrooms and serious C-suites are trying to master what will be the trajectory of their company, their sector, in a world which will be profoundly different in terms of a growth trajectory than the one that we're used to or the one that they have been successful in in the past. 
And that, coupled with leaders who are prepared to step forward and say that we will all feel the benefit of this more and earlier if we all move together and we need to move together quickly, is, I think, providing an extremely different backdrop to the Paris negotiations than any other climate negotiation that we've seen over the last 22 to 23 years. In Lima, just 10 days ago, at our annual meetings and the annual meetings of the IMF, Christine Lagarde simply said, if you haven't priced carbon, and she's talking at this point to ministers of finance and their senior officials, please go away, go home, figure it out, put a price on it, and come back. Never before has such a blunt statement been offered by the fund. Uh, The fund has ideas about how it should be done. But really there's there's nowhere in the room to go other than to sit down and face the reality, which is that we are in the business of trying to change the trajectory of growth so that it is lower carbon, that there is no roadmap for this, Some some countries have moved ahead with certain aspects of this. There are economies which are massively more efficient than others. There are economies that have trading systems that have worked. There are economies that have different tax frameworks than others. There are economies which are enjoying inflow of uh, FDI and private investment into the cleaner aspects of the economy. But nobody's got a monopoly on the truth on how to do this. And while we figure out how to do that, at a time of austerity in large parts of the world, at a time of slowing growth in other parts of the world, and at a time of pressure on the social contract of what it means to not leave anybody anybody behind, while all of that is happening, we will have to find massive amounts of finance to invest in our resilience now, because the cost of not doing so in both in terms of economic growth and opportunity lost, as well as lives, is unthinkable. So now we finally have a situation where ministers of finance, prime ministers, presidents, understand that this is their job. It's not the job of the negotiators. It's not the job of the ministers of environment. It is, but this is much bigger. And so the question then for Paris is, can we pull off the beginning of a global deal, the beginning of a global pivot rather than an environmental pirouette. Turn the clock back to 2009, to Copenhagen. Just before Copenhagen, there was a massive mobilisation of investors and financiers. This was going to be the negotiation which set a global framework and set certainty into which everybody would move and investment would flow. It didn't happen. The business community was mobilised and they went to Copenhagen. The investment community mobilised and went to Copenhagen. And they slunk off back home with their tails between their legs because there was no framework for them to go home and then say, this is what the future holds. It was quite strange, really, that you would have the private sector sort of waiting for government to act when normally the private sector would move ahead of government. It was a time when we were still talking at each other rather than sitting down and working through the problems together. The next year in Mexico, in Cancun, businesses' reaction to their disappointment or their disillusionment in Copenhagen 
was simply that they would just go ahead no matter what government said. And if 20 kilometres down the beach, government was going around in circles, it didn't matter because we're business, we know what to do and we're just going to go ahead and do it. But that doesn't work either. The public policy signals, the the, uh, investment climate, the business enabling environment is critical if everybody is going to be shifted in the right direction. First movers are important. Leaders in every sector are important. But if we're really going to have the shift to low carbon growth, everybody has to understand the direction of travel. And since then, I think we've been seeing in sector after sector, problem after problem, challenge after challenge, ways in which the private sector and government at the sovereign and sub-sovereign and at city level now, very importantly, as well as with civil society, are finding ways to think through shared action, think through joint priority setting, and we're seeing a generation of working coalitions growing up organically around problems which are in the vested interest of some governments, some companies, some sectors, some civil society organisations. And these are offering us new um, satellite forms of global governance outside the norms of the United Nations and international governance as we know it. The Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, the efforts to end deforestation in supply chains, the Climate and Clean Air Coalition looking at at short-lived climate pollutants, sustainable energy for all, all governed by private sector and government sitting together, all with work plans with the private sector and government working together, all funded by the private sector and government together, all providing a platform to move forward faster than the consensus necessary of 193 states. All saying, this is something that we think we can solve and we will move, and if you want to join us, come with us. All using an evidence base which is now enjoying a greater degree of uh, agreement than ever before. The IPCC has been as unequivocal as any scientific forum governed the way that it is, could be. The economics that then flow from that basis of science have become increasingly clear. From the World Bank to the IMF to the OECD to the new climate economy led, obviously, by Lord Stern, who's, no, who's so familiar here, have all said that the cost of inaction far exceeds the cost of action. So if the science is so clear and the economics so compelling, it is the political uh, environment which is complicated. And the question is, is there anything that we can really do about that? Or is that politics becoming less complicated the closer we get to Paris? Or is the politics becoming less complicated as more and more people experience climate impacts. Well, let's just look at the politics. Let's start with the Gs. First of all, the G2 has found a way to work together. The relationship between the United States and China on climate defies the sceptics, for the moment, of the long-term stability of that relationship. 
It is a relationship which has allowed both countries, neither of whom are keen to be subject to international monitoring, reporting or verification on any issue, has allowed them to find a common space where they can offer up a mutually assured construction of climate action with uh, a sense of, well, if I do this, then you'll do that, and then if you do that, I'll do this, and then we'll both do this, which is very different from uh, the vision that we had pre-Kyoto. I think it's very interesting that it is in the context of the G2 that China made very important announcements about its entry into the role of being a climate financier. It was very interesting that China chose to announce its $3.1 billion worth of climate finance from 2020 on in the Rose Garden as opposed to in the General Assembly Hall of the United Nations. It was affirming of the importance of that bilateral relationship it was a mirrored reflection of the $3.1 billion that the U.S. had already pledged the previous year to the GCF. It was a recognition that these are two climate superpowers. But it was also a statement that this need to provide financing, this need to uh, be a partner to developing countries in the journey towards low-carbon growth and in the journey to investment in resilience was something that was of the national interest of both countries outside of the framework of the convention. Let's go to the G7. <clears throat> Germany worked so hard to get the language of the G7 this summer. To have language in the G7 that recognised that by 2050 we really need to have a carbon-neutral energy system was quite astonishing. Um, and I think that uh, working out how that will come about becomes a central tenet of what it means to be a member of the G7 going forward. The pressure then moves to the G20. And, of course, this year they will meet just two weeks or three weeks before Paris. The G20, sometimes maligned as... Um, uh, a gathering that has now to prove its value in terms of actually acting on things that it says it will do, obviously has to, first of all, face the big climate commitment that is really a G20 commitment, which was the Pittsburgh commitment uh, made at the beginning of Obama's ter first term, where the G20 uh, signalled that it would work to reduce harmful fossil fuel subsidies with so much momentum about getting prices right and so much momentum about getting finance flowing and so much focus on the economic policy measures available to government to move in the direction of low-carbon growth. It is difficult to imagine a G20 summit just three weeks before Paris not coming under extraordinary pressure to be coherent and forward-leaning on this issue. That brings particular pressure on one, maybe two, maybe three members of the G20. So I think the politics remain complicated, but they are clarifying. The fog is lifting. The clouds are parting. And what's really important, therefore, 
is to analyse the INDCs, the Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, the bottom-up national plans submitted at the moment by over 150 countries to the UN, this inversion of everything that we thought climate negotiations were about, the idea that national contributions added up would amount to where we need to be rather than a global system negotiated and then handed down. I think there was considerable scepticism about the INDC process when it was first agreed. There is still considerable scepticism from those who have analysed the INDCs to see whether or not when you add them up we get to two degrees or not or below. We don't, unsurprisingly. But as those, as, as others, and I think including here at the Grantham Institute, analyse the INDCs in terms of how much emissions reduction can you actually see in the INDC, how much uh, focus on adaptation can you see in there. And as they are also analysed as a first generation of investment prospectuses for low carbon growth and resilient development, there, I think, there is more to celebrate or more to be, of, uh, to be interested in. And it is in these INDCs that you see the manifestation of the clarifying politics. More than 80 INDCs, that's twice as many as the number of countries that are already engaged in some effort to price carbon at the moment, have said that they will price carbon or plan to or have announced to that they will. The good news for them is that based on the experience of the 40 countries that are already in this process, we now know many of the principles that need to be upheld in any pricing system, whether it is a trading system or a tax or a fee. We know how to do this so it is fair. We know how to do this so it is effective, i.e. reduces emissions. We know how to do it in a way that is transparent. We know how to do this in a way that provides stability and predictability. You also see in the INDCs some indications of continued removal of harmful subsidies, although by no means uh, enough. And again, here, we also know now how to do this in a way that means that the poor will not suffer in the shift from harmful subsidy regimes to uh, non-harmful subsidy regimes for the poor or for the environment. We know how to support through safety nets the poor so that they are able to afford energy when the subsidy is removed. We know how to communicate to the public who will be the winners and losers in advance of any subsidy removal. These are important pieces of knowledge which are now backed up with substantial resources so that that support is available to governments who have said in their INDC that this is what they want to do. So we're now at the point where if you are prepared to take the political step of indicating that you will start to move in this direction, the support is there from the international community, uh, bilaterally or multilaterally. So the politics become very important because Paris will be a very different agreement than anything we've seen before. It will be a four-part or a four-pillar agreement. There will be a negotiated text. There will be some form of political statement. There will be an agreement on finance. And there will be an action plan agenda, um, the Lima-Paris action agenda. 
It is in that last fourth bucket that you see all of the public-private alliances, pledges, and significant, I think, commitments in many cases. Together, that four-pillared agreement needs to speak loudly and clearly to market participants, other leaders, investors, companies, entrepreneurs, and the general public. It needs to speak loudly about how we will work together for that orderly transition to low-carbon growth and that you can still aspire to a job, a job for your kids, clean air, a job in a clean energy sector or in, the, in clean urban transport, that you can still aspire to uh, survive if not and thrive under a cleaner economy than you would under the old one. There will be costs of dislocation, but that we're not going to blame those who are employed in the dirty sectors of the economy, that we are going to find ways to support them as we move to a cleaner economy. Now, this is a very, very complicated communication problem that the French presidency has. To communicate economically that this is the direction of travel and importantly if the political leadership is there this is the speed with which we will move in that direction of travel and to communicate to the general public that we get it this is serious and we can do this and we can do this together and there will be winners and losers and we will take care of the losers but but this is something that we can do and we will not leave anyone behind that is a very complex communication challenge. Now let me talk about the finance package because that has been one of the thorns in the entire process, a thorn which has drawn blood for a long time and something which has undermined the possibility of building the trust necessary, the trust necessary to reach an agreement, and the trust necessary for the public to believe that the negotiators and leaders could really do anything that would make any difference. When climate change represents a market failure of the scale that it does, that is so distant often temporally from what you can do about it, and spatially what you can do about it. When you're sitting you know, in your living room here in the UK and you see the cyclone hit the Philippines... What, what, what do you do tomorrow that would make a difference to that television picture? That's the action problem that we have. And the failure up to now of the developed world to put the cash on the table for the developing world that would represent its down payment on a problem that was caused by the developed world, experienced by the developing world, and is in some way a token of the recognition of that, has been one of the big uh, obstacles to negotiation success. Now, of course, in Copenhagen, in the middle of the night, on the last night, the figure of 100 billion was inserted into the text. 100 billion a year from 2020 that this would be a transfer of resources from the developed world to the developing world. Um, now, of course, moving towards low-carbon growth uh, is not a billion-dollar or multi-billion-dollar proposition. If you read the INDCs, 
we're talking about multiple trillions of dollars of investment. The Chinese, I, excuse me, the Chinese INDC alone is calculated to be worth about $6.5 trillion worth of investment. The Indian INDC alone, according to Indian figures, it represents $2.5 trillion worth of uh, investment. The Chinese, Chinese have also said that the implementation of their INDC would, it would uh, create 30 million jobs. So we're talking about shifting trillions of dollars within the global economy. But that $100 billion is significant for political reasons, significant for reasons of trust. You fulfill your promises. And significant for those that are the poorest and the most vulnerable, who will be dependent upon public transfers of climate finance that can then leverage private investment. We've seen enormous shifts in the financial markets around, for example, the creation of a green bond market, the realisation of a potential carbon bubble and the move to divestment. So we're seeing major shifts within the capital markets, within the institutional investor community. But those aren't going to really make that much difference in the short run for the least developed countries, for the fragile and conflict-affected states. They will depend upon public transfers of resources, climate finance, the smart use of development finance, humanitarian finance, and in the case of development finance and climate finance, that that money can leverage and crowd in, mobilise private investment, that's what they're going to depend on. So that $100 billion is very important. The OECD calculated in a report that was published less than two weeks ago that today, snapshot, that there's about $60, uh, $62 billion worth of that $100 billion already flowing. And so the question was, how do you show that there is a politically credible pathway from 62 billion to 100 billion, and that you could do that before Paris, because in Paris, you have to take that off the table as an issue, as a thorn in the side of the negotiations, in order to get an agreement uh, globally. In Lima, at the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, all of the MDBs stepped up and put, you know, an additional, um, uh, depending on how you calculate it. Um, 30 to 40, potentially even 50 billion dollars worth of financing on the table by 2020, together with bilateral uh, commitments of finance and other commitments of finance that can be expected by other countries bilaterally and other institutions in the next few weeks. I think it is now possible to see that there will be 100 billion by 2020. But 100 billion by 2020 is, of course, important, but only only important in one way. We still have to find massive resources for resilience before 2020, and we have to find a way to send the signals within the economy to direct trillions of dollars into low-carbon growth. The finance is all about the Paris Agreement, which is 2020 on. Uh, we know or between now and 2020 that we are... Well, today we are at the bottom of a hockey stick of resilience, that we know that the climate projections would show an increase in intensity and frequency of extreme weather events, which will increase the costs um, in, in economic terms substantially uh, over the next few years. So that in, we have quadrupled the, costs that we're, the, quadrupled the cost of extreme weather events just since the 1980s, and we expect that this cost will continue to increase before 2020. And it's going to hit certain countries more than others.
So where the investment in the resilience of those peoples comes from is the public purse. That public purse is also coping with the costs of the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals approved by the UN just a few weeks ago, is coping with an unprecedented strain on humanitarian resources as the world faces multiple conflict, if less war, but multiple conflicts around the world. And of course, you don't need me to tell you that the pressure on all of those resources as a result of the unprecedented refugee crisis in Europe means that the generous nations of Europe who uh, provide 0.7 or above of their, uh, uh, of their uh, GDP in terms of overseas development assistance are, are, are availing themselves of the clause in the agreement in the OECD for overseas development which allows them to use that money for the arrival costs of refugees. And so we see a basket of public money coming under pressure from all sides. So if you are the development minister in the UK or if you're the development minister in any European or OECD country, you need to work out where are the smart investments that mean that your humanitarian spend, your climate spend and your development spend are building resilience because the costs of relief, the costs of response and the costs of crisis overseas and domestically, are so much more than if we can improve resilience. So now we have to work out, well, how do you know that you get resilience when you are uh, providing a uh, water treatment uh, plant in a low-lying area? How do you build the cost of resilience into school building programs? How do you ensure that you're getting resilience from sanitation Uh, uh, and and irrigation uh, programs. So one of the things that we've been doing in the World Bank Group over the last few years is completely re-engineering the way that we do our business, putting an internal price on carbon and using it as a with or without in all economic analysis to see whether or not we still feel confident about the economic viability of investments that we'll be making that we'll only see fruition in 10, 15, 20 years' time. We are, by definition, a long-term investor. Uh, agreeing with all of the multilateral development banks what is mitigation and what do we count as mitigation so that we can show that we're not double counting between development and climate finance or that we're not counting something as mitigation that really isn't, that we can get a real handle on what we're doing and so that you as the taxpayer can compare apples to apples and oranges and oranges and you know that if you put $10 of assistance into a multilateral development bank you might get $70 of private sector investment alongside that and that that makes sense versus putting $10 somewhere else and not getting anything because that resource will be under pressure. We've reached agreement on how to consider, how to consider what, is an, what is adaptation. So when you invest in a water treatment plant and you put it in uh, just a little bit higher up rather than in a flood zone, Do you count the total cost of that as an adaptation project? Or do you just count the incremental cost of the relocation of the project as the adaptation cost? The answer is the second, but uh, that had to be negotiated. We've agreed now with the members of the IDFC, all the national development banks of the middle-income countries and the bilateral financial authorities of the donor countries, that we will measure and report in the same framework 
so that there is complete transparency about what public money buys you. We've um, had to think through how to put disaster and climate screening on all of our investments. We're having to think through how to measure um, the carbon in our portfolio. By definition, as a development organisation, we're going to invest in carbon-intensive projects. We're going to be in the energy-efficient sector, energy-efficiency sector, in brown economies, because we're in the business of helping brown become greener. And every time we do uh, a retrofit of a transmission system where the grid is dependent upon fossil fuels, that will go into the portfolio, that has carbon associated with it, and the carbon intensity of our portfolio goes up. But we need to know how much carbon is in that portfolio, and we need to know how we want to think about that in terms of risk going forward. So all of these things have been done, and all of these things have been negotiated with a board that represents the globe. If you look at our board, everybody sits there. China, India, Saudi Arabia, the United States, the European Union. Seven years ago, we couldn't even talk about climate change and development. Climate change was not considered a development issue. It was something that was only to be discussed in the UN and had no place in multilateral finance. Today, today, climate change is considered the greatest threat to the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals and the context within which all development will be carried out in the next 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And as such, is central to the role of all multilateral development finance. Seven years. That might might sound a long time, but for those of us who've been around a little bit longer, believe me, that's a um, significant shift in a very short period of time. So what does this all mean for Paris and what does this mean for you in this room? Because there are many, many problems still left to solve. I believe that we have very important building blocks. We have the science, we have a lot of the economic evidence, we have a lot of the tools available to government, available at the regional level, available at the city level, available at the national level, to make some of the choices that we need to make. That we need political leadership that will take the long view, that will act now on the understanding that this will, if to not act, will punish the public purse in the years to come. And we need sustained pressure from people, from the public, to support those who will take the long view. But you see this in country after country. I mean, just in the last few weeks alone, both Australia and Canada have shifted political viewpoints on climate. Now, maybe those decisions were made for other reasons, but I honestly believe that climate was at least a part of that. Climate change is a very big part of the election in the United States uh, already. Never been really the case before. Here in Europe, the cost of the refugee crisis and the fact that this is the beginning of huge movements of people over the next few decades. I mean, the 60 million people in Bangladesh that will not be able to live 
comfortably where they're living now, if sea level rise continues at the rate that it is within the next 10 years, this is a significant problem that has to be resolved, solved, and coped with by this generation, my generation, and by the people in the region, but also by the peoples of Europe. So we've still got a lot left to do, but the politics are beginning to move in the right direction. And so if we have the science, we have the economics, and we're beginning to see some of the politics clear, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and the UNEP GAP report shows how far we are from being on the trajectory we need to be on. But I do think we have the opportunity to pivot in Paris and not simply to pirouette. How aggressive, how disciplined, and how focused we are prepared to be democratically, technically and financially post-Paris in implementing those INDCs is a test for you and for me, not for the negotiators. There is no room for silly politics anymore. We have to decide that if we're not going to leave people behind, we will have to make difficult decisions. To decide to do nothing... Or the, the, the act of indecision is a decision to leave people behind. Because today, sea level is rising. Air quality is appalling. Black carbon is accumulating in the Himalayas or in the Arctic. The decision to not do something is the decision to do something which is antithetical to what I think you believe when you look in the mirror. So is it acceptable to have political leaders that don't share that value? No. And I think that we're beginning to see in ballot box and ballot box around the world people coming to that conclusion. So the problems to solve. How are we going to fund resilience? How are we going to invest in resilience now? Between now and 2020 and then from 2020 on. That's not on the table in Paris. This is all about post-2020. But we have to put financing on the table now if we are to let least developed countries, the poorest, the most vulnerable, believe that we care about them. And we need them for a global agreement. They're on our side. Loss and damage. It will be talked about to some extent in Paris. But it is a post-Paris work problem. How will we think about the fact that this problem was caused by generations and countries over the last decades, is experienced now by others and will be life-changing for others in the years to come? What is the arrangement that we want to make as an international community around that? But we have to act now. No more pirouettes. Let's pivot. Lives depend upon it. I'm leaving the World Bank at the end of this year after 15 years in an institution I never thought would even employ me, let alone give me interesting and exciting work for 15 years. When I joined, climate was a dirty word. At certain points in the 15 years that I've worked there, I have been told not to say the words climate change. We've gone through all kinds of leadership in the 15 years that I've been there. But now, a board that represents all the major powers and a president, uh, together with a managing director of the IMF, are determined 
that the World Bank Group will become an institution that really helps its clients think through how to develop, how to end poverty in a way where carbon is not the generator of the growth that it used to be in the past. The Secretary-General said it best a month ago when he said this is the first generation that has the chance to end poverty and the last generation that will have the chance to combat climate change and the generation that has to commit to leave no one behind. So Paris, you will read about in the newspapers. Some of you will go to Paris. Some of you will tweet about Paris. Some of you will protest on the November 29th march, the biggest ever in European history since 68. Do all of those things, but roll up your sleeves and be part of the greatest transformation of the global economy that we've seen in the last 50, 60 or 70 years. This is the challenge for us now. It's an economic challenge. It's a political challenge. The science is pretty unequivocal. The question is, what will you do? And which table will you make sure you're sitting at when the decisions are being made? If you're in this room, by virtue of being in this room, you must determine to be at one of those tables. You must be in the room. You must fight your way to the table and be part of the decision-making. It is irresponsible of you, with this level of education, to not walk into the room and demand to be heard. Even if we don't all agree in this room, it doesn't matter. This has to be democratically decided. Thank you. Many, many thanks, Rachel, for a really fantastic uh, talk. Um, you talked of momentum, you talked of optimism, but you also gave us the challenge. Um, so I'm sure there's loads and loads of questions, and we have a good amount of time to uh, grill Rachel a little bit tonight. Um, the usual sort of rules uh, of engagement here at LSE, um, when you get the microphone, uh, when you get the question, please wait for the microphone. Please tell us who you are, and please keep your questions short. Um, let's collect a few questions. Um, why don't we start right at the top in the middle and work our way down? Yeah. Wait for the microphone, and then shout. Hi, thanks very much. I mean, we're... we're Could you introduce yourself? Oh, I'm, my name's Susan Casey. I'm a concerned member of the public, very concerned. How do we solve a problem like George Osborne? I mean, he's mm. just cut solar tariffs in this country by 87%. What the hell do we do? Okay, let's collect a few while you think about this easy one. Um, <laughs> there's a question in the middle uh, right there. How confident, uh, sorry, I'm Tim Root, uh, coordinator of Muscle Hill and Hornsey Friends of the Earth. How confident can we be that world politicians will avoid screwing up carbon trading like the European Union has screwed up carbon trading with the carbon price being pathetically low? Okay, there's a theme developing in this audience. Do you want to, uh, do you want to have a go two at those two? 
Let's take... do those two and then... No, 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 take a third. I'm still okay, I'm thinking third, about just, the answer uh, to the first one. You want, you want something easy, do you? Uh, my name is Amir Mirzai and I'm a sixth form student. Um, you talk about all these problems, austerity, conflict in fragile countries, refugee crisis, uh, and now the SDGs. How do individual countries actually prioritise uh, how to spend money from the public pocket on these problems? I mean, we have austerity right now, and we want to start focusing on climate change. Okay, let's... Uh, Good point. All right. Let's take those three. <laughs> so do, I don't know whether... It, you know, what do you do with a problem like George Osborne? Um, <laughs> No, look, I mean, I don't think George Osborne's a problem. I, I, think, that, um, I, I think that I, I would hope that he is being presented by his officials with the kind of economic analysis that um, the other uh, ministers of finance uh, are being presented and that, you know, he will... Uh, and if that's not the case, then I think that's something we need to fix. But... You know, the, in the UK, I mean, in the UK, uh, obviously the governor of the Bank of England is um, seriously um, uh, is in a serious process of informing himself and the Bank of England and the FSB uh, around the potential risks of uh, an economy uh, which is um, uh, which, which, is it, it, which has an intensity of carbon in it which may be unsustainable given that we know that we cannot burn all of the carbon resources that, uh, that, that, that are there. Um, at the same time, um, we preach and lecture as multilateral organisations um, and the United, United Kingdom is a significant shareholder and member of that international community that the golden rule of management of a dynamic uh, economy with, with true dynamism within the private sector is to send consistent uh, messages in regulation and that consistent messages in regulation of the energy sector with clear direction in terms of the level of um, uh, fossil fuel dependence that one wants to see will be rewarded. And we see from economies across the world that when the regulatory signals are not uh, reversed or uh, fiddled with and that, that is, there is a predictability uh, in the sector, that uh, countries are rewarded by longer term and more investment in uh, the clean energy sector. And this is from economies from Mexico to Chile to Morocco uh, uh, and on. And that economies that have switched signals from Romania to Spain to Texas have seen, uh, a, you know, a freezing effect on investment into the clean energy sector. And I think that that's obviously something that the UK is experiencing at the mo at the moment. So managing, I mean, what, one lesson from all of this is it's a reasonably flat world, right? Managing the economy is tough um, wherever you are. Uh, but I do th I do think that. Um, Energy efficiency uh, in, in, in Europe uh, remains a significant challenge. Um, there has to be ambition around driving efficiency. Europe needs to have a European energy market. Um, it will benefit from um, some of the uh, 
cost efficiencies that come from the renewable production in some parts of Europe that can then be transported to others. And that Britain has to see its energy future um, while taking care of issues of security in, in, in a European context. Um, increasingly, uh, certainly, you know what what's, what Africa is being supported to do is to create highly efficient um, energy pools, um, and at the same time, then also work on the last mile first. So, you know, building off-grid markets and distributed energy while while we're improving the grid efficiency and the cleanliness of the energy that's going into regional pools. So, if that's good enough for for, for Africa, then maybe it's good enough for Europe. Um, so I think that, you know, you know I, I hope that we all have the same set reading. Um, I think that would be important. Um, what, I think it's very interesting because people talk about the European trading system as, you know, a complete disaster. And, of course, the price collapsed. But one of the reasons why the price collapsed is that the ambition disappeared. And so when, we, when I, I was talking about these sort of principles on how to price carbon that are emerging from experience, um, I, I think this is, this is actually, I'll take a minute on this, this is very important. For the last, um, you know, almost 10 years, I think, um, there's been a technical space, uh, it's called the Programme for Mar- Partnership for Market Readiness, where countries that have wanted to um, set a, sort of put a tax or a fee on carbon or have wanted to create their own trading system have been able to meet together at a technical level, so with all the political ballyhoo, you can't mention the word tax, trading systems are awful, you know, outside of the room. And officials are sort of sitting down saying, okay, when you were thinking about this, how did you solve this problem? Or how did you think about this particular glitch? Um, What was your experience with this? And the European Commission was a very important part of this because they had the most experience and and had uh, operated um, this system. All of the evidence is that the European trading scheme, no matter its uh, problems, has actually reduced emissions and increased efficiency in the sectors that were covered in Europe. At the same time, the ambition disappeared politically, and if the ambition had been maintained and Europe was continually able to lower that cap, then the price would not have completely disappeared. Price is in part a function of ambition. And that lesson has been learnt then by others, um, now, until Australia sort of reversed itself, um, Australia and the European Commission were in direct talks about linking their markets. Um, Korea is talking to the Commission. Um, obviously, California is talking to uh, Quebec and to Ontario. Uh, California will be talking to Mexico and Chile as well. The Koreans are talking to everybody, etc., etc. You're starting to see this web of systems talking to each other. But what we're seeing is countries setting a reasonably low price to begin with as they work out how to actually operate and talk about what they're doing. So, for example, Chile, when it's announced that it would introduce a tax in 2018, has has said that the tax will come in at a reasonably low level, I think $10, um, but then it will be stepped up. If you look at the British Columbia carbon, uh, sorry, revenue neutral carbon tax, they introduced it at 10 Canadian dollars and, int- and then raised it to 30 Canadian dollars within the next few years. 
So there is a public education, a system education, and a results framework that's very important when you do that. The results have to be emissions reduction. The results have to be fair. You can't penalise one sector of the public over another. And you need to know how you do that. As you shift taxation from income and labour to carbon, as Christine Lagarde called for again last week, you know, so getting used to doing that and operating that. So now, if the ambition comes back into Europe, the price will start to go up again. And that, you know, I think measures have been taken and agreements have been reached to start to get that ambition back. So, very important thing about the SDGs is that they're universal, right? The, M- the Millennium Development Goals, which we've now superseded with these, were basically the developing world and then there was one MDG which was about what the developed world was supposed to do and that was the MDG where we really failed the most right? we, didn't, we didn't come forward with the partnership necessary for the MDGs to be, rep- to be implemented I think the thing to think about in terms of the SDGs is that not every country is going to implement all 17 SDGs sort of in a uniform so the decision about what you're going to pursue first becomes very important um, now, of course, I've got a slight bias because I'm going to go off and work on energy next year and SDG 7. Um, and, you know, that's what I, we think of as a front-loaded goal because if we, can extend, if we can extend energy access and do so in a clean way, you can buy down the costs of response to air which is not of a quality which is good for people's health. Um, you can also, if you invest in that access to energy, then you can power hospitals and power schools, you can get your education rates up, you can improve your health outcomes, etc., etc. So it's difficult to imagine how you achieve some of the other goals if you don't actually have reliable, affordable energy. So these are what countries are going to have to work through. But then if you switch over to the climate process and look at these national plans that have been filed, you see the roadmap that these countries are on. So the SDGs have to be implemented in a world which is already being affected by climate change. So you've got costs of adaptation to add over the top. And a world where we have to realise the SDGs without carbon in the economy. Problem that no generation has ever had to face before. So together, you know, we can talk about how to figure that out. Now, cost, if you're in conflict, then it makes it even more difficult to realise. So the number of countries that fall back into conflict will make the SDGs even harder to realise. Um, uh, if other things happen on the way to the forum, as it were, you know, the, the refugee crisis, etc., has sucked or threatens to suck a lot of money out of the system. And we don't know exactly how that's going to happen. But... The meeting that I haven't referred to yet in Addis Ababa in July, which was the financing framework for development, put all the emphasis on a patchwork of financing where ODA and climate finance are this particularly sort of special catalytic public funding that has to mobilise private finance which has to be then complemented by foreign direct investment, but has to be, importantly, completely superseded by the mobilisation of domestic finance, both through better taxation systems, less uh, flight of money from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, uh, less uh, corruption, and then also the mobilisation of domestic resources in terms of domestic pension funds, etc., for for fast-growing economies in middle-income countries. This is a very different way to talk and think about the financing of development than would have been the case 15 years ago when we agreed the last set of goals. 
So I think we're only just beginning to think through exactly how this all gets financed in very fluid political circumstances. But there are savings to be made. If this is a global economy that can waste over $5 trillion a year through subsidising all the wrong things in terms of fossil fuel, in terms of harmful fossil fuel, which is an IMF figure, then just repurposing some of that $5.3 trillion is a resource that we're ignoring at the moment. So there is huge efficiency to be had in the management of the global economy before we start thinking about how to raise more money uh, into an ODA envelope or into a climate finance envelope. Okay, let's have a few more. Um, Verle right here in front, and then I start taking my picks after that. Hello, um, I'm Verle Hevert, and I'm um, uh, here working at the LSE in the law department. Um, I, you gave this really rich account of uh, what you perceive to be a clear, I think, growth of momentum towards, uh, towards really a mentality change on climate change. And I noticed you mentioned the role of governments in that and supranational organizations and also business, but I didn't hear you mention civil society organizations. And I was just wondering, is that because you don't think that they have played a significant role in, in turning the tide? And does the World Bank have a policy on how to engage and harness the contributions of civil society organizations? Thank you. Okay, civil society. Let's stay in front. Charity is next. Then we come to you there in the middle. Thank you for the talk. My name is Jared Finnegan, PhD student at Grantham. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what success might look like in Paris, and specifically the sort of legal nature of an agreement. And you mentioned a lot of unilateral actions by states and business. And so I'm wondering how critical you think an agreement in Paris is. And do you think even if we don't get a sort of successful agreement as you might see it, um, that's a major obstacle to, to progress? Okay. And the final one of this round, uh, just in the middle towards me. Hello, thank you very much for the talk. Um, my name is Michael. I'm a teacher at the LC Language Centre here. Uh, just a short question. Um, I'd like to know what your opinion would be about um, energy generation through nuclear power. Um, would you or the, uh, or the World Bank have any sort of view on what sort of position it might be able to play in any visions you have for any clean energy future? So, nuclear power, um, civil society and Paris. So, uh, yeah, I, meant, I, I think I listed them in passing, but it's true, I didn't really address them uh, in this talk. I think they play an extremely important uh, 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 role. Um, but it, what's interesting to me is the role um, that, the, that n- not the, the traditional environment CSOs play in the climate space now, but, you know... it. The part of the shift in thinking about climate in the United States, where, where, where I'm, I'm resident at the moment, is, is because of the faith communities, is because of the children's health, nurses and public health communities who see the impacts of climate change at the community level. 
and who are extremely well organised at the community level. And, um, and then I think, you know, even, you know, maybe not in the US, but in elsewhere in the world, I think the unions have taken this up. So I think that it's, as you've started to see this, this stitching together of, um, uh, you know, very, very different interests all around um, what they see climate change posing as a threat to communities and a threat to the country, I think that that's been really quite important. And I think that the, the environment movement's language has sometimes been stuck a little bit in, uh, in, not necessarily in the past, but in a paradigm that doesn't, doesn't reach anybody beyond the environment movement. Um, and I th- so I think how we talk about this and how we build the coalition uh, so it's broader and broader has to be something that civil society is better at than almost anybody else. Uh, and I think that I've, I've, been, I've seen that, that movement building coming from other parts of civil society than necessarily the, 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 the climate experts and the environment experts. That doesn't mean that they aren't playing a very important role. They're studying the issues, they're watchdogging, they're, they're, holding a, they're shining a light, they're exposing. I think that's very important, but um, it's been new entrants into the field that I think have had the greatest impact. So, for example, in the United States, you know, there's a real, you know, people don't talk about climate change. People talk about children's health and air quality and all the rest of it. And then once you've got somebody's attention, then you can reverse yourself back into the discussion of climate change. Farmers will talk about crops and yields and droughts and extreme weather events, and then you can start talking about how this is all linked together to climate change. Walking into the room and saying, I want to talk to you about climate change, which is what the environment organisations have tended to do much of the time, has not been so effective. Um, And so that's just one piece of an observation. It's not to criticise the environment. We, we, We need everybody at the table, but we're really trying to build a grand coalition uh, because it's going to take everybody. And I, I've seen that, you know, the reason 450,000 people turned out on the streets of New York 14 months ago, which was the biggest demonstration in the United States since the civil rights era um, and, and since the first Earth Day, was because the faith communities mobilised. I mean, it was extraordinary. So at the bottom end of 6th Avenue, you looked up and you had the Baha'is and the Quakers and the Methodists and the Episcopalians from the Church of England and the Catholics and the Jews. And, and I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, and that's when... And, and I think that that's interesting and um, shows a little bit how we can form a common language going forward. Uh, on, uh, you know, the legal... St- you know, I'm not, this is not my strong point. Who asked the legal question? Legal... Yeah, you uh, but my legal scholar friends um, attempt to educate me about the importance of certain aspects of a legal agreement in, in, uh, in Paris, and I would um, uh, agree with them. And, um, and, and I, understand, uh, I understand why the legal formation and a, um, as encompassing and as strong a legal agreement is, is, that, that can be achieved is important. I think that my bias is just, you know, from where I stand, right? So where I'm standing, I'm looking at an organisation that I, that I and many others in the organisation are trying to ensure that on the Monday after Paris, no matter what the agreement, there are countries that, no matter the agreement, need to, want to, have to 
uh, find ways to build their infrastructure differently, have a very different energy future than they've got now, build urban transport systems which are cleaner and effectively, effectively improving the competitiveness of their cities, have got to find a way to have a more sustainable agriculture that is truly climate smart, blah, 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 right? And, yes, the legal personality of the agreement reached will be very important, but that's just not where I've been focusing my attention. So I can refer you to people that you probably know them that could give you a better answer. But uh, I think that... and, and, And in some respects... This is the communication challenge I was talking about because I can imagine that you know, you know, we're, not, we're, not, we're never going to get everything that you want right, or everything that everybody wants. And so then what's the, sto- what's the headline that you want on the Monday morning or on the Sunday, in the Sunday papers? You know, and it's, it's very easy for, the, for those people who are very close to the process to say, oh, you know, we didn't get this, we didn't get that. And then the public think, oh, was that, was that a failure? Well, even if, even if it's a failure, on the Monday morning we've still got the same problem. You know, the Philippines have just... You know, has just taken a you know, multi-million dollar hit because of a typhoon that just stayed over Luzon and didn't move for three days. And it had that typhoon, you know, for the sole reason that the Northwest Pacific is much warmer than it used to be and the path of typhoons has changed, right? That's because of climate change. So, you know, where does the Philippines find an extra X many million dollars to cope with that in an election year? I mean, that's the reality. Uh, the, third, uh, the third question was about... The third question was about... Nuclear. Ah, yes. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the, the World Bank group... So I, I will talk about nuclear power. The World Bank group um, uh, doesn't have capacity uh, to build nuclear plants or advise on them or finance them. Uh, but when we're working with countries in thinking through their energy directions and their shift towards a cleaner energy mix. If the country is interested in, in understanding how nuclear could be part of that mix, then we, we build that into our analysis. So just to clarify where we stand, the, the only multilateral development bank that has nuclear capacity is EBRD because when it was formed, the decommissioning of nuclear assets in, in Eastern Europe and, 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 and the Soviet Union was very important. Um, I think what's interesting about nuclear is that it's primarily going to be paid for with substantial resources from the public purse, which means it's a very, very big investment decision for those countries that want to pursue it. And, I mean, the debate in this country is indicative of that. I think that restricts how much of an option it is. Secondly, the planning process and the consultation with the public to get to be clear where the public's risk, pro- risk appetite is, is a multi-year process. And so any nuclear power that, is, that we think about building isn't going to come online for a decade or more, which means it's not a short-term, medium-term problem. And if we look at the pace of technological innovation and we look at the pace of the change in the markets for other energy technologies, you know, the, 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 things are moving very fast. So is it the right option for a number of other countries? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is that countries are shifting risk appetite, right? So nuclear was okay in Japan until it wasn't. Nuclear was not okay in Germany until maybe it is, right? So the fact is that nuclear, that the risk appetite or it can shift within the public. And so for all of those reasons, a long-term planning decision around nuclear 
you know, is a high-risk proposition. Does it mean that some countries won't take it? It might be, depending on what your resource endowment is, it might be the smartest solution for you. Um, but I think these are very difficult long-term decisions, and I think, therefore, it's a very small set of countries that can, can really think about it. Now, if you were Bill Gates or any of his friends who believe that fourth-generation nuclear and thorium... Uh, uh, as a, rather than uranium as, as, a, as a nuclear energy source is possible in a very short period of time and you can imagine having small backpack sized nuclear generators in the back of everybody's garden then you know, maybe that will be a different nuclear conversation but the big one, the Hinkley point etc I, mean, I think those decisions for countries are, are a long range and complex but there are a group of people putting a lot of money into that fourth generation nuclear research, and, and there's a lot of people who think that that will be a breakthrough in the next 10, 20 years. Okay, I think we have time for just two more. Um, let's start in the middle. Uh, I'll, take, I'll give shorter answers if okay, we want to have more questions. Answers, we do three. Let's, let's do a deal. It's just the two in the middle, the gentleman and then the, the lady further back, and then we come to you over there, and then we call it a halt. Um. Thank, uh, Paul Zakor um, from Carbon Counts. I'm a consultant. Um, thanks for an excellent uh, lecture. I really enjoyed it. Um, you touched upon the divestment campaign, and I was at a Grantham Imperial event last week, but they, I realize now it's called Divest Invest. And mm. I'm wondering, in your opinion, could that flight of capital, if it happens, or flight of um, pension fund money from fossil fuel investments, could that be effectively channeled into clean energy, and would it make a difference? Okay, the microphone goes just two rows back, I think. Hi, my name is Kyron from Malaysia. Um, there's a growing sentiment among young people and civil society groups for the need for more grassroots communities to take autonomy, to contribute towards a low-carbon economy. For example, growing your own food for food security and a reduction of your waste footprints. And on the flip side, the grassroots complexity that for the burning of peatland in Indonesia that's brought Southeast Asia in a complete shutdown from the haze um, in the last few weeks. How will big finance mobilize these groups? Okay, and a final question to the top left from, from me. Thanks so much. Peter Sinclair, economist at the University of Birmingham. I'd just like to ask what you think the ideal balance for research priorities should be between carbon sequestration, between storage improvements for electricity and other forms of fuel, and thirdly, for reducing transmission losses. And within that, what proportions do you see should be research done by the public sector and what by the private sector and do you think that patents or prizes or R&D subsidies are best? Okay, I haven't quite counted how many questions that were, but over to you. So, were there any others? I think... Uh, That's it? it. Okay. Uh, sorry, um, so I'm still recovering from the third question. Um, <laughs> Start with the first. Uh, so I think the divestment campaign has been absolutely uh, critical. Um, 
not necessarily for for because of divestment, but because I think it's been a way to mobilise um, a, a large part of a generation that was not was not mobilised. However, you know the, the figures that were being touted at, at the UN General Assembly this year were that. You know, a year ago, uh, the total number of uh, do- uh, no, total numbers for divestment were around 50 billion. I think the Rockefeller Brother funds are just the Rockefeller Family Fund had just come out and this time last year and, and, and announced it would divest, and that now the numbers were up in the multiple trillions of dollars following major decisions by you know parts of the you know Norwegian Oil Fund, etc. And then when Jerry Brown, I think the next week, signed the new climate law in California, forcing Calpers and Calsters to partially divest then you know so you're starting to see I think I think the work that's going on around the carbon bubble and what the risk is um, and so the stranded asset risk I think is absolutely fundamental and there's a there's a meeting going on this weekend um, out in um, in Buckinghamshire on that which I think is very very important that 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 community continue to talk about that and that the evidence base for that is is matured. We're doing some work on, if you're a brown economy, if you're a Nigeria or a Poland or a Mexico or an Indonesia, do you have a sovereign stranded asset risk? If your entire trajectory was about exploiting uh, a resource that you now may not be able to exploit, what does that mean for you? So I think that the divestment is one one end of that whole spectrum. It's very important. Um, uh, and it's a way for people to individually and collectively, you know, force action and identify with 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 a movement. And I, for that reason alone, I think it's in- incredibly I- important. But you know, forcing the FSB to really look at this as a, as a as a structural financial risk issue, a, a systemic issue, is I think uh, very important. And it's moved very quickly. It's gone from being a fringe carbon tracker report. You know, three years ago, to being an FSB agenda item, and I don't think anybody predicted that. Uh, on the, um, I think that on the mobilisation of these groups, um, I, I think that what's really important here is that um, I think there's, there's there's always a tendency, especially sort of in big organisations like mine and others, that. You know, there's a central solution, and then you sort of roll that central solution out, and then you've got a last-mile problem. You know, whether it's land management or deforestation or supply chains or energy, whatever. And, and I think what climate change, the, the, the pace at which we have to respond to the climate challenge is teaching us that actually it's a first-mile problem, and then you work your way back. And so we, we're going to have central solutions, and we're going to have distributed solutions. Um, and so helping communities think through how to manage uh, their landscapes um, in an effective way, think, helping communities think through how they're going to manage energy supply in an effective way, thinking through how they want to manage uh, other aspects of the development, uh, I think is critical. I don't think that we necessarily as a development community have figured that all out yet. Um, uh, and then I think that landscape issues per se are still under acknowledged as a, as, a, as a cause and a solution. So obviously there's years and years of work that's been done on forestry with the development of RED and RED Plus. And there's years and years of work now that's resulting in the, you know, the, the removal of harmful palm oil out of supply chains, the, 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 de, the zero deforestation in supply chains, etc., etc. Um, and then 
you know, I think on the agriculture side, there's, you know, a big community now looking at what climate smart agriculture means and whether or not you can increase yield, increase employment and decrease emissions. You know, the forestry people are over here, the agriculture people are over here, trying to get them in the same room together at the same time is difficult. And then you've got a nutrition problem because you've got to improve nutrition yields urgently, especially also in a country like Indonesia. So I think we still don't have the kind of urgency around landscape issues that, that I think we really need. And, and I think that the, perhaps more focus on the nutrition aspects of that will bring the urgency to the table. Um, okay, so to the mammoth R&D question. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. No, you know, it's, you came all the way from Birmingham. I'll be generous. No. Um, <laughs> so on the patents, I have no, I have no clue. Um, uh, on public and private, I don't really have an opinion that's worth airing. Uh, but on the priorities, I think storage is really important. And I think that's probably more private sector than... And I think that we're obviously we're going to... I mean, everybody knows about Elon Musk, but I mean, I think that that's... We're close to really extraordinary breakthroughs. You know, you can, you can buy a little solar pack like this now, and they're like Lego bricks, right? They connect to each other. And it's not just about making sure that somebody has a, a lamp that they can charge their phone from as well, that they put out and they bring in at night, you, you can now imagine that you can charge three phones and two lamps, which makes you a micro-business, but then if you can afford then to get a second and third and a fourth one, and if you can get up to multiple tens of watts, you can um, imagine that you've got a home system and you can power a uh, super-efficient uh, television, a super-efficient fan maybe a little tiny fridge and, you know, three telephones and two lamps. And that's what you need. That's what you need. And you can do that for less than $400 a day. And you think, okay, $400, that's too much. You can do that with mobile money. Right, so mobile money is actually the revolution. And then from that, and pay as you go. And so if you start to have that, then you've got reliable power at the, at the household level, then at the community level, and then you start to actually power Africa. Right? So this is, this is no longer theoretical. This is on the market now. We need to reduce tariff levels so that these super-efficient appliances don't get 18 20% tariffs when they come into the country. We're now talking about the little nitty-gritty you know, synapses that are missing in the creation of a massive market, and mobile money's made that possible. So storage... Revolution already underway, more to do. Um, transmission, I think that's huge. Not globally, but I think for India, for Indonesia, for China, critical issue, public and private, I would have thought. And then carbon sequestration. So carbon capture, use and storage. Are we or are we not? Do we, do we or do we not, right? Half the gas industry thinks it's important, half the gas industry doesn't. Half the mining industry thinks it's important, half the mining doesn't. They won't talk to each other. It's probably really, really important for seven countries in the world. So what I would love to do is get, you know, the bit of the industries that want to talk about this and the seven countries for whom this might be a game changer in the room, and then let's really talk about whether this is feasible economically, feasible, technically, and then rather than just going around in a circle. Partial answer, I'm sorry. A very good uh, time to stop. So all that leaves me to do is to thank you all for coming here. Thank you for your really good questions. And above all, let's all thank Rachel for her really brilliant uh, answers. <laughs>